Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. I was just saying off air to our next guest that, uh, boy, do I love the city uh, of origin that uh, he and the company come from. But uh, Paris, France, if, if you've ever been, you know what I'm talking about. It's it'll it'll, it'll pause whatever you're doing. Uh, just one of my favorite cities and areas around the world. Uh, Pierre Dubuc is the co-founder and CEO of Open Classrooms, one of the largest global education to employment platforms, platform providers, I should say, with 355,000 students across 140 countries, thousands of full-time diploma students and hundreds of corporate customers. Open Classrooms is a private B Corp certified distance learning organization registered with the Board of Education in Paris, France, accredited as a higher education institution by the French state. Pierre met Mathieu Nibra, the co-founder of the company in 2001, and we're going to find out about this, Pierre, but they were both teenagers then and curious about coding and computers. (laughs) So in 2013, after years of promoting online education and several pivots, they created Open Classrooms headquartered in Paris. They later founded Open Classrooms, Inc., a registered apprenticeship provider approved by the U.S. DOL and a post-secondary educational institution. It's making education accessible to all by delivering fully online work-based learning programs at internationally recognized degrees with a unique approach based on mastery learning, hands-on projects, and individualized mentoring. The platform promotes employability for all, specifically in today and tomorrow's most sought-after jobs and competencies like tech data, IT, and business. Among numerous other distinctions, Pierre was featured among the 30 under 30 by Forbes magazine and selected in the 2020 Young Leaders Program of the French American Foundation. Pierre, what a pleasure to spend some time with you today. How are you, sir? Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing really well. It's warm in New York City and yeah, beautiful weather. So looking looking forward to the weekend. New New York in spring. is amazing. So I, I think people, just like I was talking about Paris, anybody who's been to New York in the springtime can uh, can understand what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it lasts for about ten days between you know a three <laughs> months long winter and a three months long summer <laughs> with two hundred percent of humidity. But this window is this, delightful. <laughs> it's delightful, and you're spending some time with me today. So I appreciate that when you could be out enjoying Central Park or Columbus Square. Um, all right, okay. So you guys are teenagers, you and Matthew, um, and, and this in two thousand one, and you're you're interested in in coding and computers. Connect the dots for me, Pierre, because I'm always so interested in why people start businesses, because I feel like we are, I'm a parent, I should say, of a 10 and 8-year-old. The other day, I spoke at a high school where I was speaking with juniors and seniors, and they were talking about becoming entrepreneurs and just sort of the mindset that they already have, that my generation didn't. Um, Talk a little bit about the discussions that you and Matthew had early on that you kind of said maybe to yourself and together, you know, at some point in time, we should do something together. We have the skill set. It doesn't scare us as an as entrepreneur, budding entrepreneurs. And let's make sure we sync up and do something over the next decade, kind of a thing. Tell me about the mindset. <laughs> and and is also is it you tell me about in in France as well, the the entrepreneurial mindset, how broad-based is it? Is it just like it is here in America? Yeah, good questions. Um so first of all, it was a long time ago um, since the origin of open classrooms uh, started really about 
20 years ago, um, notably in 1999, um, when Mathieu was in middle school and at age of 13 years old, he started creating online courses um, on web development. So we built the, f- the first course on HTML, so how to create a website. Um, back in back in the day, in 1999, and I mean the number of resources online is very limited. It was tech text based only, you no know, videos, and no iPhones or anything like that. Um, he couldn't find um, the resource for him to learn how to build a website. He bought um, a book, a printed book. Um, didn't really find it really well written, well explained, bit too complex too complicated and, and not really accessible. So he decided, oh, actually I could I, I could be the one really writing the course I wish I had. Um, so this is how he got started. Um, then in 2001, uh, I was also in middle school and I started helping him um, on this website. And basically in, in a nutshell, he was writing courses. I was building the website. It was all for free, no business model whatsoever, age of like 13, 15 teenagers. Um, and we were just doing that as a pure hobby for fun, really, to help people and, and kind of really create, you know, the courses we wish we had in school. And then from there, uh, we did that prior to our studies in middle school, in high school, in college for many years, um, just as a pure hobby. And it, it, it built up and grew into the reference platform to learn coding in French speaking countries. So nowadays and for the past like 15 years, I would say 90% developers or software engineers in French speaking countries somehow learned uh, at least a part of what they know through open classrooms. Um, so from there, when we were students, college students, we started realizing the impact we had with literally hundreds of thousands of people learning through our free website. Uh, and we thought, hey, what are we gonna do at the end of our studies? Um, do we do we keep doing? Do we stop? Do we build a not-for-profit? Like, what do we do with that? Because it's starting to be big. And and basically, we decided to build a company. Um, so we we waited for me to turn 18, uh, which is <laughs> the majority in France, so we could uh, create really the organization, the company itself. And then from there, continued really as a hobby, but kind of encapsulated into a company. And end of our studies, we went full time and really built the company as it is today. So that was ten years ago. It's incredible. I mean, do you do you think about it and look look back at it with uh, as an accomplishment? I mean, because it came from a hobby. Like, how do you, I guess, conceptualize what you guys have done? I love the organic nature of it because it doesn't mean that you were going out to do something that was just based on the bottom line and revenue. You were doing what was in essence right by Mm -hmm. you and other students. And I think that that is a bit unique. So how do you think about it today in 2023? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say like, like you understood, like we didn't have the idea of like building this gigantic platform, a big business model, raise funds. It, It was pretty really far from um what we were thinking back then when we were uh students 
we just wanted really to help people and and build the courses we we wanted. That's it. Um, it was not about you know raising funds, making money, or anything like that. Um, and we grew organically into that. Uh, just because we had to pay the bill of hosting servers, you know, traffic, we generated more and more traffic. So we needed to add more, stack up more servers. It was very pragmatic. You know, it's like, how are we going to pay the next month's bills? It's raising and raising. So uh, should we add some ads and banners? Should we sell courses? Like, what do we do? And then um, that fosters to build a business model. And then from there, a company, so it was very organic. Um, that built a very unique culture and mindset in in the organization. Um, open classrooms is a public benefit corporation. It's very much mission driven. We're also B Corp certified, and the mission is really at at the heart of everything we do. Uh, the mission is to make education accessible. So th- this question of accessibility is really key to us. So it, it it's broad access, accessibility. It's in terms of age, geography, um, in terms of pedagogy, it has to be understandable, easily for beginners as well. It has to be obviously financially accessible for free or finance or cheap. Uh, it has to be accessible for um, anybody with disabilities. Any you know, um, so it has many different layers. But it's really ingrained in the culture of the company. So I think this history, this very unique history, um, made us what we are today. Your talk about uh, accessibility and how that has evolved over the last, let's say, 10 years. When we think about a young person, well, it could be really, I should correct myself, a person of any age that wants to learn. Um, I think we have ideas of what accessibility is and is not. And if you've had the fortune like I have of traveling to developing countries, you really sort of understand what accessibility looks like and the need. But I'm not sure that the West, mainly let's say Europe and the US or North America, has a complete understanding of what we mean by accessibility. So where are we sort of, we think about the state of the union when it comes to accessible resources in a world that feels incredibly accessible in the West? Yeah, those are really good questions. I I, I think it depends on on the market, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on the country. There are specific subsets of populations that are um, key focuses in different countries. Um, let me give you an example. Um, one common target targeted group would be unemployed or underemployed populations. We want them to have access to quality education and training and then help them get back to the job market with a quality job. That's fairly global, you know, um, in any country. Now, um, in a U.S. context, um, Workforce development and access to education and employment for veterans is a huge, uh, it's a huge target group, basically, um, with the GI Bill many years ago. And so there is a really a focus on that, that that's quite specific to the US. There are other countries with similarities, but to that extent, it's quite specific to a US context. Uh, in Europe right now, you you would have um, a target group that be refugees, um, and with you know Ukrainian war and before it was Syria, and we had 
uh, a lot of like literally millions of refugees in Europe, and we need to train them, provide them with um, foreign language uh, training, and then new skills so they can find a job uh, locally. So that's another target. So we define globally um, a, a series of targeted groups uh, in terms of population. So those are job seekers, refugees, people with disabilities, uh, people living in underprivileged areas, um, and school dropouts. So those are kind of the populations we, we want to target. And roughly um, 80 to 90% of our student base uh, belongs to at least one of those categories. Okay, so I really appreciate that designation, and you're right about the refugees. I was in um, Rome late last year, uh, UNHCR and the Pope, and they were talking about obviously the you know 100 million plus refugees that I don't think the rest of the world or the world in general understands the complexities uh, and the sheer size and scope of the challenge of of supporting these displaced human beings around the world. How do you tackle or how do you and Matthew and the team not feel overwhelmed <laughs> when you're addressing over, you know, I mean, let's just call it, you're probably approaching a half a million students. And if not now, quite soon in 140 countries. I mean, I would imagine there there's a high percentage of people that would be paralyzed in their ability to address um, those populations that you just mentioned, how do you do that? How do you then evaluate what resources are going to be the most important and salient to those populations of people? It, it is a complex issue. I mean, education um, has had it, you know, its issues for many, many years. And I don't think you can come up with a silver bullet and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it and we're going to fix it in like the next two years. Um, I think it's super complex. Uh, education is also one of the largest markets in the world, like in every country. That's one of the top three markets. Um, in, in France, where I come from, it's the largest span of the state. Education, uh, above defense, about like, uh, above anything. So very, very large. Um, so at the same time, you know, we, we train literally hundreds of thousands of students every month. It's huge, but it's also just really a drop in, in, in the water, right? In the bucket. So, um, we should be doing so much more to make education accessible because the needs are gigantic. It's like we're talking about millions in every country dozens of millions, so literally billions. We're talking about one billion people to be reskilled in the next five to 10 years. One billion. Um, one billion. One billion. Is, uh, usually that's kind of the idea you need to have in mind when we, when we talk about um, challenges in skills and jobs being impacted by you know, technology, AI, AI now, yeah, AI. <laughs> it's accelerating. And quite frankly, I think 1 billion is probably underestimated um, and was, you know, studies in the past five years. Now with ChatGPT, you, you might say, actually, mm -mm, it's not 1 billion, it's going to come faster yeah. and bigger. But that's that's important to have this order of magnitude. We're talking about billions. Um, we're not talking about like half a million or 1 million. So needs are really, really big. Um, you cannot solve everything on your own, but you need to do it at scale. Um, so you need to build a model that 
walks for potentially millions at the very least. Um, so it needs to be tech enabled. It's pretty clear that um, to do that at scale, you need a platform, you need to not to be digitized. And it's really not the case in education right now. Um, actually, a very small portion of the education system is digitized. Most of the instruction happens in a classroom in an analog way, right? That's most of it. It's less than 10% of the education system that is digitized today. In the so world. It's really nothing in the world. It's about, to be precise, 7% seven, right now. So it, it's really nothing when you we're in the compare it to we're in the infancy of this exactly so if you compare to like the travel industry um half of the marketplace is digitized more than half so um the industry of education is still needs to be digitized um and that that comes at the considerable scale so you need technology to do that that's not the only thing we need to also build somehow a different pedagogy uh technology is really a tool at the end of the day um but the way we teach the way we train the way we assess the way we tutor coach support has to change we all all take on that is to have a more skills based approach uh to teach you skills that you will need um in your next job um, skills and jobs in high demand. So we start with employers' needs to make sure that you know we match basically employers' needs to uh, our, our curriculum and vice versa. So it starts with skills, with projects. Um, we know from educational sciences that one on one tutoring is one of the most effective way to um, provide instruction. So this is what we implemented through. Mentorship, what we call mentorship, is basically a one-on-one video conference every week with a subject matter expert, your mentor, an industry practitioner. So we build out around some of the best tools and researches that we know of in education and try to use technology to enable that at scale and like iterate and improve everything uh, all the time. So um it's starting to pick up but we have so much to do uh still i mean you you mentioned we're in you know hundreds of thousands of folks every month we need to get to millions we need to get to tens of millions so it is a little bit overwhelming at the same time when you impact already so many people and you know the the way we track our social impact through the number of students we place in the workforce that could be younger adults finding the first job or, or older one like switching careers getting promoted and so on last year we placed forty-four thousand students in the workforce this way Forty-four thousand uh, students Forty-four thousand students from previous year where we placed when we placed fifteen thousand students so we like tripled more or less in one year and it's you know continuing to grow very significantly so those lives are impacted dramatically i mean we're talking about life-changing uh periods um for what does six, that do? 12 months what does that do to your spirit pierre just i mean is it do you have those moments when you when you lay down at night and you just you kind of have to pinch yourself and thinking about those forty-four thousand last year i mean 
when somebody has secured a job, I mean, this can change the the does, sort of the yeah, tree of yeah. life for them, the branch that is going to now grow. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's something. <laughs> it is, it is. And, <laughs> and to be honest, I think our human brains don't process the number, like, you know, the difference between 1000 and 10,000 is very hard to really fathom. But when you have direct one-on-one testimonials and, and those people, like, like you said, you know, their lives have, have been changed so dramatically that we receive like hundreds and hundreds of uh, feedback messages. And, and, and that's quite amazing. Like you read that and yes, you have to pinch yourself and be like, is that like, is that the impact we have on, on, on people? That's kind of crazy. You know, I remember like one of, one of them in the past couple of months that I was in a gang. Um, I was basically like, I, um, I was passionate by coding and software development. I could have gone to any schools. Um, I was like more or less living on the street. And, uh, one day, uh, my like gang buddies basically went into a fight and I decided not to go, um, and to study your online courses on like coding or Python or whatever <laughs> the guy studied and, and his buddies ended up like getting in a very, very serious thing that ended up with a murder and everybody being convicted and put into jail. So like, and you cannot really like invent that story. It's like too, too big yeah. to be true. Hollywood, so the, the Hollywood was, like, couldn't even do that. Hollywood, like Hollywood type <laughs> stories. And basically the guy and, and, and it's saying, okay, you like, I became a developer have, I went from, I'm a gangster and I could have gone to jail at the very least, if not die uh, that night. So I'm forever grateful for what you guys felt. You know, that comes to similarly like, okay, that was not part of the plan when we started at, you know, 11 and 13. <laughs> but I bet you it keeps you and your team up and Matthew up to work an extra five minutes, an extra hour on a given day because you realize the decisions that you make, the opportunities that you unveil for people through digital means can literally change the course of their life. Exactly, exactly. And and you're right, like that's really what, you know, helps be motivated and continue after like nearly 20 years working on that. Um, but it's also a lot of responsibilities because you know like how impactful you can be in good and bad, meaning we have also a lot of, you know, um, those students we have, they're in a, at a critical period of their life. So if anything goes wrong, they're going to be pretty upset and rightfully so. So we have also a responsibility to, to do it right and, and to provide uh, and deliver on the expectations they have and we should have as well in terms of, you know, graduation, finding a good job and so on and so forth. So it's not an easy, an easy role, but it, it is a fulfilling role. Let's pivot to data. I'm going to make an assumption, and please tell me if I'm wrong, that with the sheer numbers of students that you have in the countries that are integrated into the, into the offering, that you and and open classrooms would be 
a fantastic source to better understand the types of learning that people want, that they need, that the workforce needs as well. Tell me a little bit about data, how it has evolved over time with open classrooms. And have there been surprises along the way where your assumptions really did not um, result in the reality of what you were seeing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, very much so. So um, we collect a lot of data because um, everything is digitized on the platform. So we have like one single system and we're going to be able to track like your progress and where are you going and how is that going? Um, so imagine we're a college, basically with great, the great awarding powers in, in Europe, meaning you're going to start with an application. You're going to go through admissions. You're going to share a lot of data on, on yourself, on your life, on your education, on your jobs, your experience. Um, you're going to be, um, you're going to go through admissions. You we're going to provide career counseling, orientation, help you find the right program financial ed potentially, then you're going to start your training. You're going to have like courses, projects, one-on-one -on -one mentorship, one-on-one -on -one career coaching. At the end, you're going to graduate. You're going to get a degree. We're going to also provide you with job opportunities, connect you to our employer's network so you can find a good job. And then we're going to, we're going to go already until this very last mile, which is you find a job and we can also report on it. Like I said, you know, 44,000 um, students placed in the workforce. So we need to know um, how that concluded really. So did you find a job? Which job? Which employer? Which salary? Is that um, relevant to your field of study? Is that aligned to your field of study? Et cetera, et cetera. And, and it is very unique to have a data system that connects the dot from A to Z. It's a very long journey because it, it can be a multi-year journey. And depending the type of person, the way you uh, provided and delivered on the instruction, the degree, the job, then the, income, the, the outcome can be very different. So you want to compare trajectories and, and detect um, the different properties and traits that would lead to higher outcomes. So we we define student outcomes as in graduation rate and job placement rate. Um, we're working more and more with governments to be able to track job placement rates in a more reliable way. Uh, traditionally in the education sector, it's been through job surveys, meaning you ask your alumni, hey, are you employed? <laughs> Which job? Problem is they don't reply, and when they do, it's not necessarily true. <laughs> um, and it means that also to compare from one school to the other, from one college to the other, um, it's very hard because many schools have different ways of measuring that and excluding uh, certain data they don't like or playing around with numbers. It's not audited. It's very subjective, not transparent. It's very subjective. So you, it's really hard to compare and have like a, a really good understanding of the performance and the student outcomes of every program. So we're working with governments to have access to their wage and tax and employment data because um, governments, most of them actually know if you're employed <laughs> because you pay taxes and, <laughs> and maybe your employer also pays, you know, social charges and all. Um, so they know if you're employed. 
So meaning that they have a very unique uh, view uh, where they can actually tell and compare. Um, so we're we're heading towards down. It's going to be really interesting because I think if you, if we define collectively the right metrics uh, um, and of you know what we expect, what we mean by quality education, what what outcomes we truly mean in details, and how can we compare that? Then it means that we could invest uh, better our uh, public um, you know. Uh, into a public education system, also private education, obviously. So um, I think the way we allocate those budgets, like at a country level or even like uh, multi-country, like regional level, uh, will be will change over time. And data should be and will be, I think, um, at the core of those new choices where we allocate uh, our spend in education. Um, so it's really fascinating, and we've seen many big surprises. Like, for example, in uh, one I can give is around um, learning online versus offline versus in person. When you ask um, when you ask people like, do you want to have access to a classroom and teacher, and you know, or do you prefer to do it online? Many of them will tell you, I prefer to do it offline. I want to ha- to go to a classroom, have like somebody to talk to, and they so want on. the engagement. They got they want the engagement. Um, now, in reality, when we tried and and tested that, um, the problem is when you do, you need to go to a specific place at a specific uh, time, and and that is that is not accessible actually in a way that not everyone can go. To a specific location, precise public public transportation issues, all right, employment, childcare, childcare, exactly. So um, there are many many roadblocks actually, and um, and we realize that actually, despite having say in a given region like hundreds, if not thousands of people, you know, willing and saying I'm interested, they didn't show up <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, they didn't come and not. Because you know it was all far free, so really like we tried to uh, make those tests as you know relevant as possible, and yeah, they didn't show up. So you have like um, some data sometimes shows like counterintuitive results. Uh, you think it's gonna go this way, but actually in reality it goes the other way. So it's quite it's quite interesting to really test assumptions all the time. Well, look, I'm gonna say that it's important that we have curious people at the helm of global education. And I mean this as a compliment, and I'm sure Matthew is the same, but uh, I find you to be very uh, a curious individual. And we need that uh, when we think about asking big questions that we are unafraid of the answers so that we can make better decisions to support our global citizens. Um, incredibly important. I would imagine that the 44,000 that you placed last year is only going to grow uh, this year and beyond. Pierre, where can people go to learn more about open classrooms and or start the application process? Openclassrooms.com, start an application. And um, you can also learn more about us through some of the pages at the footer of the website, bottom of the website. 
Well, keep up the great work. I just love this story for so many reasons. I love what Open Classrooms represents, what you're doing to support those that uh, often are feeling probably hopeless to some degree in their ability to change their current circumstance. And you're doing it with dignity and opportunity to thrive in a global marketplace. And I also love the story just of two teenagers that organically said, you know what? This isn't here. Let's do it. Let's see if we can find a solution and provide the kind of education and learning opportunities that we want as students ourselves. And I think that that speaks to the quality of individuals you are and really the mission and vision of Open Classrooms. We want to thank Pierre Dubuc. He's the co-founder and CEO of Open Classrooms. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.